It's Wednesday, November 17th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. A woman in Argentina known as the Esperanza patient has become only the second documented person whose own immune system cured her of HIV. She is what's known as a so-called elite controller of HIV. This happens in an estimated 1 in 200 people, and their immune systems are able to suppress the virus from replicating to very low levels without using antiretroviral treatments. While still unknown how this occurs, it does provide hope for the 38 million people living with the virus. Benjamin Ryan, contributor to NBCNews.com, joins us for what to know about the Esperanza patient. Next, where have all the public bathrooms gone? Going through the pandemic and seeing the closures of bars, restaurants, and other public spaces, it laid bare how very few places there are for a person to relieve themselves. It was a trend that was definitely happening before the pandemic, with many places being closed or just neglected, which also gave public restrooms bad reputations. According to a public toilet index, the U.S. only has eight toilets per 100,000 people overall. Elizabeth Yuko, contributor to Bloomberg City Lab, joins us for what to know about the lack of public bathrooms. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So effectively, they found that her immune system, through some means that they don't know exactly, had basically killed off any last virus that could have repopulated the virus within her body. Joining us now is Benjamin Ryan, contributor to NBCNews.com. Thanks for joining us, Benjamin. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about an interesting story, the Esperanza patient. This is a woman who lives in Argentina who has become only the second documented person whose own immune system may have cured her of HIV. There's been a couple of other swirling cases, uh, two that involve stem cells, uh, another person Mm -hmm. who, you know, their own uh, immune system saved them as well. But this is the latest one that we're learning about. So, Benjamin, start us off. Tell us about the Esperanza patient and, and what's going on with her. This is a woman, as you said, she's about 30 years old and she lives in Argentina. She has a daughter that she had last year and she's pregnant with a second child now. Uh, Her first child was born HIV negative. She was diagnosed in 2013 and there were some irregularities in the way that her HIV test came back. So it just seemed that she wasn't developing antibodies to all the different components of the virus, the different viral antigens. So that was sort of a red flag to practitioners in Argentina. And gradually she got connected with a researcher down there who got connected with another one who's a specialist in this type of research at the Reagan Institute in Boston, which is affiliated with Harvard and MIT. And These researchers used very sophisticated technology to comb over 1 billion of her cells, and that included 500 million cells from a placenta after she gave birth, in fact. That was a kind of an amazing turn of events that she had given birth, and so they were able to get a bunch of her own tissue. And they were unable to find what's called any replication-competent virus. And what that means is that any virus that was spliced into the DNA of the cells that would be able to produce viable new copies of HIV. So effectively, they found that her immune system, through some means that they don't know exactly, had basically killed off any last virus that could have repopulated the virus within her body. One of the things about the Esperanza patient, and, you know, she's uh, going, uh, she wants some anonymity with all of this, right? That's why they're calling Mm -hmm. her that. But um, there's these group of people that are so-called elite controllers of HIV, an estimated one in 200 people. And this is kind of where some of this hope lies in, right? To figure out Mm -hmm. how these people are able to suppress the virus. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And I don't want to say people should have hope that perhaps there are one in 10 million people or one in 20 million people whose body just happens to be able to do this magnificent feat of of beating HIV on its own. But where the hope is, is the notion that researchers can try to figure out what happened in some way, harness it or replicate it through some sort of therapeutic means. And as you said, so the Esperanza patient, as well as another woman by the name of Laureen Willenberg, who's a 67-year-old lives in San Francisco, they both are members of the class of elite controllers. And these are people whose immune systems, through some means that they don't quite very well understand just yet, are able to control viral replication without the need for antiretroviral treatment. It's possible they have some sort of very aggressive killer T-cell response to HIV infection that just isn't something that we see in other people. So this is something that researchers have been studying for many years to try to better understand. And so Lorraine Willenberg and the Esperanza patient, in both cases, it seems that their T-cell response was so strong that it was able, as I said, to basically kill off any replication-competent virus that's hidden in these cells. I mentioned that there were a couple of other cases of men who research said they were able to stop the HIV in them as well. That was Mm -hmm. kind of a different case, though, and we heard about them already. There was an American and then one from uh, London, but they had cancer, a very specific cancer. They received stem cell transplants, and that's kind of how they got over it. But those are some uh, other interesting aspects to it too because it's not they can't they were able to functionally cure them but they say that's not really a cure for the most amount of people they had an extenuating case with cancer the stem cell transplant is pretty strenuous on the person Mm. and that's not really a, a course of treatment for a lot of people what happened in those cases it was two men as you said each had cancer they had a kind of blood cancer lymphoma or leukemia in each case which was treatable through a stem cell transplant. And what happens at a stem cell transplant is essentially you're given somebody else's immune system. First, they have to ablate or kill off your own immune system, which is a very devastating toxic process. And then they give you someone else's stem cells, which repopulate your body, hopefully, with immune cells from the other person. Now, there's a small percentage of people from European descent who have a natural immunity to HIV. Their immune cells lack what's called a certain co-receptor onto which HIV detaches in order to begin the process of infecting a cell. So if your immune system lacks these co-receptors, HIV basically can't get in the door. It sort of lacks the, the knob to turn the door to get into those cells. And that's what happened in these cases with these two men. The first case was written up in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2009, a guy named Timothy Ray Brown. And the second case was announced in 2019 Again, as you said, a man in London. And I just spoke with a researcher of that case study in the past few days, and he was able to tell me that whereas before he thought the man was probably cured of HIV in this case, now he thinks he was almost definitely cured. And the reason why they have to be very cautious is because you just never know after a certain amount of time if HIV might come roaring back. And the reason that is, is when HIV infects a person, it establishes what they call the viral reservoir. Now, there are all the sort of active immune cells that it'll affect that are going around and doing active things. And then there are what are called long-lived stem cells or long-lived memory cells. And those are cells that are not replicating new copies of the virus, but yet are still infected. And because they're not actually working through the machinery of making new virus, the uh, antiretroviral therapy can't see the virus in those cells and can't go after them because it only works when the virus is being replicated. And so that's why it can hide for long periods of time in these reservoir cells. And then if you were to go off your antiretrovirals after a time, they would sort of come back to life and start repopulating the body with new virus. And that's why it's so difficult to get a handle on HIV. It can sit dormant for so long and be suppressed well enough 
and then pop back up. And uh, mm. you you wrote a, another article talking about kind of the road ahead for an HIV cure and mm -hmm. HIV cure research. They call it cure research, but people are very hesitant mm -hmm. to use that word because of what yeah. you just spoke to. It can pop up. So uh, tell me a little bit more broadly about some of these mm -hmm other ways of trying to cure HIV. Mm -hmm. There's multiple fronts that they're doing. You know, there's mm -hmm. gene therapy, something called kick and kill, something called block mm -hmm. and lock, and then uh, right. other vaccines that they're hoping they can work on this. Right. So there's so much that's going on in the genetic field these days with CRISPR-Cas9 in particular, which is essentially a kind of scissors that can sniff and edit different gene sequences. So, you know, ideally you'd have some sort of therapy that you could inject into somebody and it would go in and it would find all the HIV in the cells and sniff it out. That's a lot easier said than done, of course. So essentially they're trying to find ways that are less toxic and more scalable of recapitulating what we've seen in the, the American man and the London patient, as he's called, but, you know, that would not require an actual stem cell transplant and, and chemotherapy and that kind of thing, which, you know, would not be ethical to give to people if they weren't already facing a fatal blood cancer. So that's one avenue. And so kick and kill is essentially trying to use some sort of agent that would wake up all of those resting cells that aren't replicating new copies of the virus so that then some other therapy, that's the kick part, and some other therapy with the kill part would come in and kill the cells that are infected. There's been a lot of failures in that realm of research over the years. It's been pretty discouraging. And a similar, somewhat opposite way of doing it would be block and lock, was essentially trying to figure out where those cells are that are harboring latent copies of the virus and then just keep them from ever waking up again. And so in a way, that seems to be what some elite controllers have done. What they found in research is that it seems that their immune system has preferentially killed off cells in which the virus is capable of replicating. And what's left over is virus that's then spliced into the cellular DNA and kind of a remote dead zone that's too far away from the levers that start up replication to be able to have any potential effect on the body and to be able to spew out new copies of the virus. And then again, there's other ways of sort of hopefully prompting the immune system to kind of do a better job of going after the virus. And that would be something along the lines of a therapeutic vaccine. People often look at HIV cure as a binary factor, either you're cured or you're not. I like to give people more hope to say that like, we're talking about decades of research potentially here before there's some scalable cure, if it will ever be developed. But in the meantime, what can happen is that researchers find more and more ways to make living with HIV even more innocuous. Antiretroviral therapy is very effective. It can mean you can lead practically a normal lifespan. But even then you have HIV that is well treated by antiretrovirals, they're still at higher risk of a lot of negative health outcomes. They think because of the chronic inflammatory state to which HIV gives rise. So if you can find ways of shrinking the viral reservoir and of tamping down that kind of inflammation that you get even when you are well treated with HIV, that's the kind of stuff that hopefully HIV cure research will discover along the way. And so essentially make HIV a more and more innocuous state. Benjamin Ryan, contributor to NBCnews.com. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks a lot. Take care. After Prohibition and after a lot of these public restrooms or comfort stations were built, they realized, oh, everybody's using them, which is what we wanted. Also, what we want more is nicer things for ourselves. Joining us now is Elizabeth Yuko, contributor to Bloomberg City Lab. Thanks for joining us, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about public bathrooms. We've seen them, their presence really decline in the United States. I mean, I'd be hard pressed to 
even name one off the top of my head and say, oh, there's one right here kind of thing. One of the things that happened throughout the pandemic as restaurants and bars and even retail spots closed down, everybody kind of noticed there was far less opportunities and places to go. And uh, it's, you know, really kind of a problem throughout the country, right? That we see the effects of it, you know, where homeless people urinate on the street, things like that. You know, people have difficulties. We heard stories about Uber and Amazon drivers having to go in bottles because there was nowhere to go throughout the pandemic. It's an issue that the country has, this lack of public bathrooms. So, Elizabeth, you looked into it. Tell us a little bit more about what we're seeing. I mean, as you mentioned, there has been a noticeable lack of public restrooms for years now, but the pandemic really put a spotlight on that in terms of human indignity and, you know, having unhoused individuals having to go in buckets with kitty litter, or as you mentioned, the drivers having to urinate in bottles. And I think there was this notion that because everyone was at home or a lot of people were at home during the pandemic, that the existence of public restrooms didn't really matter. But what that's not accounting for, aside from essential workers and frontline workers and everybody else who is keeping us moving during the time, it didn't account for the fact that a lot of what we consider to be public restrooms are actually located, as you mentioned, in private commercial establishments. So bars, hotels, department stores, restaurants, that type of thing, coffee shops is a huge one, fast food restaurants. So places that people normally count on to use the restroom were not available. And one time in particular that this was very evident was summer of 2020, when there were the widespread protests against the murder of George Floyd. And thousands of people were flooding into major cities and had nowhere to go to the restroom. Right. So you had public urination complaints up in major cities. You had businesses that were closed, but posted on social media, hey, if you need a restroom, we're open, just the public service. Plus, the, you know, the fact that we've been told to wash our hands, I mean, our entire lives, but that was such, especially <laughs> right. in the beginning, such a major component of COVID prevention that when you're out and about and realize you don't have the opportunities to wash your hands with soap and water, you notice that they're missing. Definitely. Yeah, it's a public health issue at that point. There's an interesting thing. There's a thing called the Public Toilet Index. And in August 2021, we got some numbers. So in the United States, we only have eight toilets per 100,000 people overall. And uh, in the article you mentioned, it's tied with Botswana. Iceland leads these rankings with 56 per 100,000 residents. So very, very few numbers for the amount of people that we have in the States. And so the question is, how did we end up with so few opportunities and locations to go? And you did kind of a dive into the history of how things started. And you mentioned that, you know, the department stores and how there was very few true public restrooms throughout the country. Yeah, absolutely. And it was interesting, but also disheartening to see the parallels between what was going on 100 plus years ago and the conversations we're still having and challenges we're still having today. And one of them, yeah, as you mentioned, was the shift from thinking that the government should be responsible for providing facilities like public restrooms to more of a consumer model of privacy, which is a term that Peter Baldwin, a historian at uh, University of Connecticut, coined. And yeah, in that case, there were the wealthier upper class women who initially had campaigned for public restrooms. And 
either were part of the progressive movement in general or part of the temperance movement. And they saw public restrooms as a way to decrease alcohol usage in, in men, particularly because if a you, man was in public and <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he needed to use a restroom. It was the bar or the alley. And when he was in the bar, might as well go to shot in a beer. So <laughs> that was kind of part of their campaign. But after prohibition and after a lot of these public restrooms or comfort stations were built, they realized, oh, everybody's using them, which is what we wanted. But also what we want more is nicer things for ourselves. So that's when hotels and theaters and department stores became known restroom locations. Yeah. And even though they were technically open to the public, there were ways around that policy, like the bargain basements in department stores. So the hope in that case was that the less wealthy customers would go straight to the bargain basement and use the toilet down there and shop their deals and not disturb the wealthier customers upstairs. So that was kind of the beginning of the end of public restrooms. It wasn't that linear because there were spikes in the construction of public restrooms during the 1930s, during the New Deal projects like the Works Progress Administration and the CCC. And those were primarily public toilets built in rural areas or parks. And then in the 1950s, once the highway system started getting going and created, there were the highway rest stops. But that really was one of the last major implementations of public restrooms. And so since then, you've seen a lot of closing and right. not really any opening. Where are we now? Because you did mention uh, a couple of uh, examples. I think uh, the Portland Loo was one of them. And there are some cities that are adding these types of facilities in their localities there. Yes, definitely. I spoke with Stephen Soifer from the American Restroom Association as I was writing this article and kind of asked him, what are your top picks for cities that are, are making progress in this area? And Portland was far and away the head of the pack for this. Yes, they have the Portland Loo, which they designed specifically for Portland, but is being used in cities across the country like Denver, San Antonio, Texas, Cincinnati, Ohio, and probably in other places soon to come. And these are self-contained kind of toilet pods that are designed so they're difficult to vandalize and easy to clean. And yeah, so those or versions of those might be the wave of public restrooms of the future because, you know, instead of building an entire dedicated structure like a comfort station, you just have this pre right. prefab toilet <laughs> that you you know stick there and people can use. Elizabeth Yuko, contributor to Bloomberg City Lab, thank you very much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. <laughs>